You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Good morning, North Ken Chapel. Good to see you guys today and good to sort of see you online. Good to be seen by you, I guess. You guys know I'm a sucker for a good quote. And uh, so here's one. And I want to sort of cast this over our series. This comes from an Englishman named John Stott. And no, I'm not going to do it in an accent. I'll let you imagine it. He says this, he says, good preaching lives with one foot in the word and one foot in the newspaper. I love that because what he means is that good preaching, good theology, good church has to live in this constant tension between this never changing truths of God's word and this seemingly always changing world in which we live. We find truth when we bring this to bear on all of this. can't think of a conversation more pressing in our time than the area of human sexuality. Sexuality has become kind of a signaling issue, hasn't it, in our day? Signaling what we believe about people, what we believe about God, how we're designed, what God expects of us, how we should relate to each other. And a little over a year ago, our staff and our elder board started praying and asking, okay, how should we have this conversation as a church? So there's a lot of work behind here. I want to let you know where we're going the next uh, six weeks. You've already heard a little bit about it. But um, in truth, we could easily spend like months here. And I think you know that. There's no way in six weeks we're going to be able to adequately touch on absolutely everything. But nevertheless, here's where we're going. This morning, um, we're going to do just kind of a quick overview. Uh, We're going to talk about how to have the conversation. So we're going to lay some ground rules for what this means for us as a church. Uh, We're also going to talk about three areas where I think the church can do better, three opportunities for us to sharpen our skills. And then we're also going to conclude today with God's design for human sexuality. We're going to take a look in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we're going to end up all the way in Revelation. So we got like... And you're like watching the clock going, okay, we'll get there. Next week, we're going to talk about what does brokenness and longing have to do with with sexuality. We'll talk about the fact that we're all sexually broken people. I am, and you are too. What does that mean? Week three, I'm really excited about it. Lori and Matt Krieg, we're going to have some guests. Lori and Matt are coming. Um, They have an amazing story of sexual brokenness and healing because of Jesus. And then also that afternoon, um, Lori and Matt are going to co-lead a workshop for us here. You're going to hear more about that if you haven't already. It's still time to sign up. Week four, we're going to talk about, okay, what does the Bible say about homosexuality, same-sex attraction? How should we identify ourselves as sexual beings, but also people who have been changed and impacted by Jesus? What does this mean for us? Week five, our care and counseling pastor, John Mangrum, is going to lead us to understand how do we glorify God if God's called us into marriage, if God's called us to singleness or to celibacy, how do you honor God in those stations of life? And then we're going to conclude in week six, what does it mean to cast a gospel sexual ethic in a very broken world? And so that's where we're going over the next six weeks. There's a lot of hay to bail, so to speak. There's a lot of ground to cover. 
So three parts to our morning this morning. I just want to let you know. It's going to feel a little bit different. We're not going to get to the text until probably about the last 10 minutes or so, but you'll see why. Um, So in just a little bit, we're going to lay out four ground rules. Uh, We're going to talk about how to have this conversation. You can't just charge in like a bull in a china shop. Four ground rules. And then we're going to talk about three places where I believe we can do better. And this isn't just how to have the conversation. This is why the conversation around sexuality is so important. And then lastly, probably the last 10 minutes or so of our time, uh, God's design for human sexuality. And for that portion, we're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 and then end up in Revelation. But I want to pray before we go any further and just ask the Lord's continued blessing on our gathering this morning. Lord, we say thank you so much that you are sovereign. And God, if we were to step into a place like this, a time like this, without you, we would be utterly lost. Everything that we have comes from you. Everything we are comes from you. And so, Lord, for your church here and for us this morning, Lord, I ask that we would keep our feet to your paths. Keep us faithful, Lord. Give us courage. Give us compassion. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so part one. There's some recognitions that we want to talk about. And these are these kind of four ground rules uh, that kind of shape the conversation. So we've got to talk about how to talk about this. So four quick ground rules. Number one, we recognize this is a deeply personal conversation. Um, every one of us is in a different place with where we think about human sexuality. And we've arrived at that place by what we have been taught, but also what we have been through. Because human sexuality is a really personal conversation, um, we're going to do everything we can to see individuals over issues and people over policies. One practical way this works out is through personal connection. And so I understand that even just broaching the subject could trigger some things or go, gosh, I I haven't dealt with this in my life and there's some stuff I want to talk about. You need to know that all you got to do is reach out to one of us on staff and we would love to meet with you uh, in the form of counseling or coaching or just a heads up just to sit down. We'd love to do that because this is a deeply personal conversation. Second ground rule is we recognize that this is a deceptively complex conversation, isn't it? I think at first glance, it seems like really easy to talk about sexuality because Christians have a way of hiding behind slogans that initially sound really great but are ultimately very depersonalizing and overly simplistic. Things like, well, love the sinner, hate the sin. It's that simple, right? okay, show me how that works out in your life. It's deceptively complex. I think that because the church has been silent on human sexuality, other than don't have sex till you get married, because we've been silent on everything else, many of us probably think we know more about sexuality than we actually do. And so since this is a deceptively complex conversation, we're going to go really slow through these next six weeks. It may feel like it's too slow for some of you, It's going to be okay, I promise you. Um, God's design for human sexuality, as as I've been reading and thinking and praying and and through this, is is it's kind of one of those turn the diamond kind of things. Like the more you turn it, the more beautiful it gets, the more you see. And so you got to slow down long enough to really see it. And so one thing I want to point you toward is that workshop that we've alluded to. Um, If you know people in your life 
um, who would identify as LGBTQ+, or would say, gosh, I experienced same-sex attraction, or this is part of my life, what do I do? How do you navigate that? And so we've, Lori and Matt Krieg, um, we've invited them specifically for that week. This is September 11th, 2 to 4, um, which I know there's a football game happening that day. I'm aware. We're Browns fans. We're used to disappointment. It's okay. <laughs> no? I know there's like two Pittsburgh Steelers fans in here. Find another church. Just joking. Um, so in all seriousness, though, I do want to avail you uh, uh, to this opportunity. This is not something that you're going to want to miss. This is free for you. We just want to let you know, because this is a complex conversation, don't miss this. Ground rule number three, we recognize this is a deep conversation. Now, there, like I said, there is no way in six weeks that I'm going to say everything this conversation deserves, nor will I say everything perfectly. At the end of this series, there's a good, choi- good chance that you're going to have more questions than answers, and that's okay with me. My job is not to answer every question you have, but to get you to ask better questions and point you to better conversations. Um, and that's really the heart behind these grace and truth groups that we've talked to you a little bit about. Immediately following this series, these grace and truth groups are going to be places where you, if you are curious and going, okay, how do I talk? I need to talk. I don't just need a monologue from a stage. I need to talk about this. Um, these are safe places led by pastors and staff here at North Canton Chapel where you can just talk about what God is teaching you in the area of your sexuality. We've even hit pause on our regular discipleship rhythms in the fall because we believe that these are so important. Ground rule number four, we recognize that this can be a potentially confusing conversation. Um, I don't think this is going to surprise you, um, but we're going to be really Bible-heavy in these next couple of weeks. Um, I don't think it will surprise you because we're Bible-heavy every week here. Um, In a very confusing world, this is what brings clarity. I believe that to my shoes. And if it wasn't for this, we'd be lost. Now, some of you, though, let's just fly a little lower. Some of you hear the word Bible connected to sexuality and you get spooked. Because you've been told that if you experience same-sex attraction, if you identify as gay or you identify as a sexual minority, that God hates you and that you're abomination and you're headed for hell. That's not true. And we're going to talk about that, and I'm asking for your trust, please. Others of you, because of what I just said, you just kind of did the RCA dog thing. You went, wait, wait, hang on, what? Because you're like, all right, it's time to take a stand, light it up, let's go. Culture's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm asking for your trust also. One final word of intro before we get to the real meat. You've heard me say this before, clarity is kindness. Clarity is kindness. And that means that it's actually unkind to be unclear where you stand, particularly as a church, particularly in the area of human sexuality. And so I want to read just a quick snippet from a quick uh, paper that we've crafted as a church over the last several months. And so for clarity's sake, I'd like to read this to you. As a church... We believe that marriage is given by God to be an exclusive, lifelong, covenantal union of one man and one woman, and that God intends sexual intimacy to be enjoyed exclusively within this marriage covenant, and that any inward cultivation or outward expression of sexual desire apart from that is against his good and gracious will. Now, 
Some of you can breathe. You can exhale because you've been waiting for that. And I know that. Some of you, though, you just tightened up because now you're going, well, wait, what does that statement mean? And my word to you as your pastor is both of those are fair and just reactions because here's the thing. Sexuality is not about statements, is it? We are humans. We are people with souls, people with souls that feel deeply, hurt genuinely, and love sincerely. Sexuality is not about theory. It's everything that we are. We can't pretend like it's not important. I can't, like, pull this out of myself and, like, analyze it. That's not how that works. And so speaking of humanity, I want to move into the second part of our morning. Um, When I think about how the church has talked about sexuality in my lifetime, and I'm 41, I get really nervous. I get a little anxious. I don't think we've handled this issue well. I don't think we've had the conversation well. I don't mean North Canton Chapel specifically. I just kind of mean Christians as a whole. This may be a little bit broad stroke, um, but before we get to the text this morning, God's design for our sexuality, I want to set the tone by acknowledging three areas around human sexuality where I think we may have missed it. I know I have, personally, in my life. These are all three things that I have been guilty of, too. And so I offer these three as an opportunity for us to do better and maybe even a prompt for personal repentance. Three areas we can do better, and then I'm going to give a gospel corrective for each. Here's kind of acknowledgement number one. I think often we've let our fear justify our silence. One of the more common concerns I heard as we began planning for this series, I even heard it again this last week, it kind of goes like this. Gosh, if we open the door for this, what's to stop this from happening? And it's like this slippery slope sort of thinking, right? And I know some of you, you even hear the phrase LGBTQ+, and you get nervous. I get you. In his book, Leading a Church in the Time of Sexual Questioning, pastor and author Bruce Miller makes this statement, and I think he hits the nail on the head. As often as gay people have been told that Christians hate them, conservative Christians have been warned that churches will slide into liberalism. And I'm not naive to believe that that fear isn't very real for many of you here today. Fear is all over this conversation, and it's why we don't have it. It's why we stay silent. On one hand, there's fear with Christians, right? We'll begin to compromise the authority of Scripture, sacrificing aspects of theology for the sake of cultural relevance. And on the other hand, there's this fear among those who identify as sexual minorities that they'll be treated with hatred and shame and rejection and stigma. And so we stay afraid and we stay silent, You know what the easiest thing to do in the face of fear is? Nothing. When you're afraid, it's always easiest to do nothing. But here's something I've noticed. When we stay in fear long enough, and we really like sit there, fear of people becomes distance from people. And then distance from people over time eventually hardens into apathy for people. And that is never Jesus. A friend of mine, a fellow Moody grad, Nate Collins, uh, puts it this way in his book, All But Invisible. Here's what he says. Data from the FBI supports the claim that LGBT people are per capita the second most frequently targeted population in North America, 
behind Jewish people. In terms of violent hate crimes, LGBT people are at the top of the list and three times as likely per capita to be targeted as Muslims. For the sake of comparison, a gay person is 35 times more likely to be the victim of a violent hate crime than a straight person is. That should bother us. And we should not sit lightly with it. Um, when I first was talking about doing this series, I had someone approach me and they said, well, you know, like only 6% of the U.S. identifies as gay. I mean, isn't this kind of much ado about nothing? You sure you want to stir all this up, especially with everything that's happened in the last two or three years? Do we really want more controversy? Six to one, or six out of 100. Okay, okay. Um, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us even slimmer to odds. He backs it down to 1%. 99 sheep in the fold. And there's one that's vulnerable. Wandering out there somewhere. And what's the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 to go get the one. But the real question is, why? Why does he do that? Here's the question under the question. He's got 99 over here. Why bother about the one? Because he loves the one. And so the turn has to be, aren't you glad that God didn't leave you out there? And then aren't you glad that he gave us his spirit so that we can partner with him on his rescue mission? And so here's the gospel corrective for our fear. I think we need to be a whole lot less fearful about the loud and proud and more burdened for the silent and suffering. Are we willing to go where Jesus goes, do what Jesus did, and see who Jesus sees? John 4, a five times married cohabitating woman, too afraid to go to the well when everybody else does. And so what's Jesus do? He sits down next to her and they talk. Luke 19, Zacchaeus, public enemy of God's people. Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house today, Zacchaeus. Luke 7, a prostitute wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. A very sensual act, if you can imagine that. Jesus lets her and then publicly rebukes her critic. Strange thing, unlike us, Jesus seems less fearful of sliding down some slippery slope and more burdened for the invisible, silent masses sliding into hell with no one ever noticing them. What would it look like if Christians were known less by our fears and more by our burdens? Acknowledgement number two. I think a lot of times in the area of sexuality, we have chosen safety over relationship. And I have safety in quotes for a reason. Um, when we feel threatened by something, we feel like something's out to get us, it's natural to want to create distance between me and whatever that thing is that's making me uncomfortable. It's a very natural, human, understandable defense mechanism. And as it relates to sexuality, that distance shows up in a lot of ways. One of them is jokes, and I hear this a lot. Um, it goes like this, like LGBT, LMNOP, how many letters are on this thing? Okay. Or like the, you know, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Those jokes are never funny. <laughs> and they're never funny. They're not funny. Because it just sends a signal that says, I wish I didn't have to talk about this. That's all it is. Or pushing deeper, I wish I didn't have to deal with this. I wish this didn't exist. And you may feel that way, but here's the thing. It doesn't take much for, I wish I didn't have to deal with this, to become, I wish I didn't have to deal with you. 
And for somebody who experiences same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, there's not much difference between I wish this didn't exist and I wish you didn't exist. In his book, Us Versus Us, Andrew Marin conducted the largest survey ever on LGBT people and faith. And here's what he found. 86% of LGBT people were raised in the church. Just sit with that one. 51% left after they turned 18. So what we see is they were here and they left, and that should bother you, but it kind of begs the question, well, why did they leave? And the prevailing cultural narrative in the evangelical church is, well, they left because we took a stand. They left because we wouldn't compromise our truth. Here's what he found. Most LGBT people who left the church said that they left for the four reasons. One, I didn't feel safe. Like, I'm not bringing this up here. Are you out of my mind or out of your mind? No way. Two, people were unwilling to dialogue. Nobody really wanted to talk with me about this. They just wanted to do the church thing. Three, relational disconnection. Like, I don't even know anybody that I could trust with this conversation. And four, they felt dehumanized, isolated, or shunned. Like, they didn't really want me here anyway. Here's the point it wasn't theological reasons that sent them packing, it was relational reasons. <laughs> What that tells me is that we can be very, very good on theology. We can be clear. We can be consistent. We can be articulate. But if we're poor on relationships, guys, we lose. My point, disciples do not have the luxury of distance. Now, I know why I want the safety of hiding behind jokes and statements and polished positioning. Like, I know why I prefer stated theological clarity over costly relational compassion. I want those things so that I won't have to engage the hard things of church. And so here's the gospel corrective for this one. As long as the church has people in it, it can never be comfortable. Real people, like three-dimensional people with stories and burdens and joys and sorrows and sins and messes and pains and loves. A church that's always comfortable is a church that's not real. It's fake. The New Testament paints a picture of a church full of people who should hate each other, Jew and Gentile and slaves and slave owners, Roman loyalists and Jewish zealots. These people shouldn't be even in the same living room together. But because they're so annoyingly in love with Jesus... They give up their comfort for the sake of closeness. Now, here's what this has to do with sexuality specifically. Great line from Preston Sprinkle, who's the president of um, Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. Affiliation does not have to mean affirmation. Affiliation does not have to mean affirmation. Jesus hung out with prostitutes. He never affirmed prostitution. Jesus hung out with tax collectors. He never affirmed extortion. Jesus defended a woman caught in adultery, but you don't ever see him holding pro-adultery rallies, do you? And so follow me. Because we follow Jesus, we cannot affirm, but neither can we hate. Because we follow Jesus, we cannot endorse, but neither are we free to push away or to treat with contempt. Because we follow Jesus, we've got to live in what I will call the third way. I believe it's possible to hold to the historical, traditional, biblical definition of marriage as a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman and authentically love those with whom you disagree. And that's what I want our church to be. 
And if you can get there, then the only question is, well, how do I do that? And if that's you, you're in a great place. Just sit tight. Third thing that I think we need to acknowledge. This is going to sound really harsh, but I think we've missed the point of human sexuality. I think we've missed it all together. Often, we equate heterosexuality with holy sexuality. I think most of us unconsciously believe that heterosexuality on its own, so natural sexual desire for somebody of the opposite gender, we think that that on its own is holy sexuality. And because we've equated the two, I think we've missed it. Here's the story. I had this conversation a couple of years ago um, with a guy not at North Canton Chapel. Uh, he wasn't coming to me as his pastor, and so we were just having a conversation. And we met at Starbucks for coffee, and um, he told me the story. He says, hey, so here's what I want to bring up to you. He says, uh, we just discovered that you know, our, our teenage son has been watching porn on his phone. And like he just had this huge sigh. He goes, like, I just don't know what to do. And so, like, you've been in those conversations where, like, the wall is lowered, and you're just like, oh, gosh, all right, Jesus, like, step in here, let's go. And so, like, before anything else happened, like, the wall went right back up, like, as if sensing the need to diffuse the awkwardness of the moment. The wall went right back up, and then he goes, well, at least I know he's not gay. Now, what is that? Where does that come from? What's driving that? Why the unconscious ranking of sin? Like this isn't as bad as this? Like why the inconsistency? Because I sometimes slip in the same mode of thinking and so do you, right? You're watching TV and a gay couple comes on TV and we change the channel. But when a heterosexual couple hooks up in some rom-com, we go, aw. Whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Why is one like just a shame? We like wink at it and go, aw. And the other one's like the unpardonable sin. What is that? It could be that our inconsistency is our greatest indictment that we have forgotten or maybe we've never actually heard God's real beautiful design for human sexuality. Most of us, I think unconsciously, have been taught a version of sexuality that goes something like this. If you're married, as long as you're not watching porn, sleeping with your secretary, or doing weird stuff in the bedroom, you're okay. And if you're single... We want to get you married off as quickly as we can so you can start popping out kids. And if you're, married, if you're single too long, we're a little worried about you. That's garbage. That is so short-sighted. It's not helpful. It's wrong, and it misses the point. So what I'm going to say is going to sound really freeing for some of you, and it's going to land a little oddly to others. So just trust me for a minute. In his book, People to be Loved, Preston Sprinkle makes uh, this, I think, very incredible statement. Here's what he says. I'm going to say it slowly, and then we're going to kind of pull it apart. The gospel is not Jesus came to make gay people straight. The gospel is Jesus came to make sinful people holy. Now, because I know you, and I love you, and I know the way some of you think, some of you just kind of went like, well, hey, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Isn't straightness and holiness the same thing? No. That's what I mean when I say that we may have missed the point. Not necessarily. And so here's the correction. 
not being unfaithful, not watching porn, not doing really weird things in the bedroom doesn't mean that my heterosexual marriage necessarily belongs to Jesus. That just may mean that I have found a way to mask my still selfish, sinful heart with good behavior. I just found a way to make my lust Christian legal. I got married to a girl. Done. I haven't given anything over to Jesus. I've just hidden it from you. And that's not discipleship. That's just brand management. But we've settled for it, although it's not the fullness of God's design for me. And whether you naturally experience heterosexual attraction or whether you experience same-sex attraction, the good news of the gospel says that you can enjoy a restored relationship with your heavenly Father, not because of your performance, but because of Christ's performance. That's the gospel. Now, let's get to the text. God's purpose for our sexuality. Before we get to any questions like, is being gay a sin? Is gay marriage really marriage? Does God allow same-sex unions? Before any of that, I think we've got to ask another deeper question that will lay the foundation for where we're going to go. We've got to start here because answering those questions without building a right foundation is like picking out curtains in a second-story bedroom when you don't even have the cinder block laid down yet. So we've got to start here. This will serve as a foundation for everything that's coming over these next six weeks. Here's really why we're doing this, though, for now. If we're going to have a solid theology of human sexuality, I think we've got to move past, here's what I know, here's what I think, and ask a question that goes a little bit better. It says, is what I know really built on what God's word actually says? And so six principles for human sexuality. Here we go. Number one, humanity is the willful creation of a sovereign God. We've got to start there. And for this, we're going to go to Genesis chapter one. Humanity is the willful creation of a sovereign God. And so if you've got a Bible, a phone, if you want to watch the screens, either one is fine. Genesis chapter 1. We've got to start where it all started. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, stop. He created everything else. (laughs) Everything else. Everything else we see, everything else we know, everything else we feel. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That word man right there in verse 26 is the generic Hebrew word for mankind. Or if you want to think about it this way, people in general, humanity. Verse 26 makes the point that humanity began as a creation of God. He wanted to do this. He didn't have to. He didn't create us because he was lonely because he needed company. He was totally fine without us, but then there was something in God's glory that overflowed and said, let us create man in our own image. This is this first allusion to the doctrine of the Trinity there. Here's the point for you, though. You are not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are the willful creation of a sovereign God. Psalm 139 supports this. He says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the willful creation of a sovereign God. 
That's principle number one. Principle number two, humanity exists for God's glory. Humanity exists for God's glory. Genesis doesn't give us a clear picture of God's motive for creating us, but later, through the prophet Isaiah, God puts this moment of human creation under the microscope as if to ask, why were we even created? Why did he bother? Isaiah 43, verse 7, gives us the answer. It says this, Isaiah 43, verse 7, don't miss the phrase, everyone who's called by my name, who I created, why? For my glory. What that means is that the fullest expression of what it means to be human cannot be realized without God. There is no anthropology, study of humanity. There's no opinion about a person that's worth anything without God. You can't take him out of the equation. And pretend like we just got here. Every attempt at understanding Brandon Marshall, apart from God, is ultimately fruitless. And so before we say anything about sex and sexuality, we've got to get that. Until we understand that we exist for God's purposes, until the foundation for living is God's glory, everything else is just like a house of cards. It doesn't stand up. Pastor and author John Piper puts it like this. This is a long quote, but it's a very good one. Here's what he says. Where this perspective is lost, he means God's glory, and the magnifying of God's glory is no longer seen as the great aim of redemption, pitiful substitutes arise, man-centered philosophies that exalt human value in a way that distorts the work of redemption and belittles the primacy of God. Stop there for a second. What he's not saying is that humans don't have any value. He's saying, yes, we do. We have profound value. But it's seen in who God is and what he's done. He continues, though. Here's what he says. I don't have to tell you that this perspective of God-centeredness has been lost in our day, even in churches. Man is the star in our contemporary drama, and his comfort, his prosperity, and his health are the great goals. Of course, God is there on the stage, but only as a kind of co-star or supporting actor to round out the picture for religious and cultural expectations. Gosh. What does he mean? Until my purpose for my life aligns with God's purpose for my life, I will miss the purpose of my life. Until my purpose for my life aligns with God's purpose for my life, I will miss the purpose of my life. Back to Genesis and point number three. Humanity is made differently. Humanity is made differently. First off, you can see in verse 26, we're different from creation. Here's what he says, verse 26. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so what we see in verse 26 is this pulling apart, this separating, this evaluating humanity above the rest of creation, almost in a custodial stewarding kind of sense over fish and birds and livestock. Well, what's different about us? Verse 27. And so God created man, humanity, people, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's different about us? Shows up three times right there in two verses. In his 
image. It means we have a soul. It means we have beauty. It means we have a will. It means we have the capacity for beauty and the, the capacity for destruction. I love my German shepherd, Gus, deeply. He is not created in the image of God. There's something different about humanity than the animals. But also, and you caught this, didn't you, at the end, Male and female, he created them. So not only are we different from creation, but we're also different from each other, aren't we? This difference is embedded in the creation narrative. I really like what Preston Sprinkle says here also. He says this, Heaven and earth, evening and morning, land and sea, day and night, light and darkness, different aspects of God's good creation playing different roles in broadcasting God's glory. Unity among difference, he continues. The creation of humanity as sexually different persons, male and female, is woven into the fabric of God's creation account. And not only that, our sex difference is a climactic moment in God's grand finale where creational differences are singing together in harmony. That's so beautiful to me. Following creation itself, taking its cues from everything else, human sexuality is embedded with difference, male and female. Now, what are those differences for? Great question. Glad you asked. (laughs) Principle number four. Our differences complement each other. Our differences complement each other. And for this, flip over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 is a closer look at the day that God created humanity. And it gives us a window into why those gender differences matter. Why male and female is important to God. And we're going to get a little academic here, but I know you're tracking with me, so we're good. Genesis chapter 2, look in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, there's a really important Hebrew word hiding under that phrase, helper fit for him. Here's what it doesn't mean, okay? It does not mean barefoot in the kitchen with an apron, okay? This does not mean diminutive little wifey who just goes make her husband a sandwich, okay? There's nothing in that phrase that implies less than or subpar or not equally valuable. Here's the word, and we're going to say it. You're going to learn a little Hebrew this morning. The word is konegdo. Say konegdo. Konegdo. It's made up of two Hebrew words fused together. Here's why this is important related to sexuality. You'll see it. First Hebrew word is ke, ke, k-i, ke. It means like, similar, or from the same starting point, ke, ke. And then neged, it's the second half of the word, so kinegdo. Ke, similar, like, different. And then neged, which means opposite, or different, or even opposed. So put those words together. Do you see the weird verbal smash-up happening in the word? Similar, same starting point, opposite, opposed, different. Put those together, and it basically means that these two people this crowning point of God's creation, are the same kind of different. If you had to explain it. Marriage, which alludes, kind of glances at it here, 
But he's going to hit it really hard in the next verse. Marriage involves two people who are similar in that we're both human, but different in that they're opposite gender. As different as light and day, or light and dark. As different as day and night, sea and sky. Completely different. And every married person goes, that's why. And you go, yeah, it feels that way, doesn't it? Principle number five. Our differences open the door for intimacy. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Our differences open the door for intimacy, and this is the first hint at marriage. It starts with a therefore. What are we supposed to do with that? Read that like a since. Since, S-I-N-C-E, since. Since we're the same kind of different. Since we're like each other but not like each other. Since our maleness and femaleness means that we're equal but opposite. Since all that, marriage can make sense. It can. What does that intimacy look like? And it's at the very end of this verse. And the two become one flesh. Now we're going to get a little biological here, so buckle up. The Hebrew word there, one flesh, is bashar, and it has at least three meanings. All of these meanings are in view here. First meaning, one flesh, bashar, is flesh, as in the material covering the bones. Okay, like just the stuff. And what he has in mind here is skin-on-skin contact. Second meaning of bashar, one flesh, is the body or a person as a whole. We're going to talk about that in a minute. It's not just my skin. There's something more. The unseen parts of me also. And then most common, and you probably deduced this one, is reproductive organs, and it kind of explains itself. And a male and a female become one flesh in the act of sexual intercourse. And so, yes, this image means sexual intercourse, but it also means so much more. New Testament scholar, teacher, and author Christopher Ewan puts it like this, and I love what he says. This is another long quote, but it's great. This phrase, one flesh, primarily denotes sex in marriage, but it also communicates something more profound than lovemaking. The marital covenant is a permanent, exclusive, and holistic union of two people. He continues this way. The Hebrew word for flesh is bashar, which refers not only to the soft tissue of a body, but also to the entirety of a person. Therefore, this one flesh union in marriage is more than simply sex. It's an all-encompassing reality that fuses two diverse people into one. That's beautiful because it's impossible. How do you take two people that are that different and put them together without God? Good luck. Principle number six, human sexuality points to Jesus. And for this, we're going to lift out of the bedroom and we're going to gallop into a throne room. We're leaving the marriage ceremony and catapulting into something else entirely. I want to jump thousands of years from Genesis and drop into a letter from the Apostle Paul, wanting to explain the beauty of of sexual intimacy and marriage to a young church, Paul gives a bunch of instructions for how husbands and wives ought to relate to each other, but then he drops this. This is Ephesians 5, verse 31. Here's what he says. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What book of the Bible is he quoting? Genesis. He's reaching all the way back here. But then, significantly, he continues, verse 32. This mystery is profound. What mystery? This mystery that two completely different people could come together and actually experience holistic intimacy together. That's profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, what can that possibly mean? Later, John sees clearly what Paul only alludes to here. And this is Revelation 19, verse 6. Here's what John says. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb, this is Jesus, has come, and the bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. This is a glimpse into what theologians call the marriage supper of the Lamb, this end times, one day yet to happen event where the church, the bride of Christ, will finally enjoy intimacy and union with her king. This is the ultimate reality that every earthly marriage should point to. And so follow me, stringing together Genesis and Ephesians, and then finally Revelation. Genesis and Paul and John are all saying the same thing. Here it is, that your marriage is one giant object lesson. Marriage has frighteningly little to do. Sexuality has frighteningly little to do with me now and has a whole lot more to do with us later. Your sexuality is telling a story. That's why God has such a high view of sex. If I am intentionally created by God for his glory, does my sexuality, even in all of its brokenness and pain and shame, does my sexuality say, I love Jesus just as much as my finances and my parenting and my preaching and my work? This is probably going to sound a little uncomfortable, but hear me. We are sexual storytellers. In her book, An Impossible Marriage, Lori Krieg, who will be with us in a couple weeks, puts it like this. Marriage only makes sense if it tells a bigger story. Our gender differences highlight that as different as men and women may be, we are nowhere near as different as God is from us. Spot on. The purpose of marriage is not to make me happy. The purpose of marriage is not so you can finally have sex. The purpose of marriage is not so Mandy can complete me. Only Jesus can do that. Don't put that pressure on her. Sheesh. Again, Christopher Ewan, here's what he says. Marriage here on earth is not the ultimate. The ultimate awaits us in eternity, and you were created for it, regardless whether you're single now or married. When you feel a certain discontent in your marriage, even when your marriage is healthy and good, this is normal. Love that. Here's what he says. One more. There it is. There's only one marriage that will bring you ultimate contentment. Heaven will mean complete union and consummated glory with Christ. What greater joy is there than that? 
There's something embedded in human sexuality and all of our longings, our joys, our hopes, our fears, our misgivings, our frustrated plans, our hunger for real, actual, authentic, emotional intimacy that points to, foreshadows, prefigures this ultimate one-day union with Christ and his church together perfectly, no barrier, complete intimacy with no distance. The good thing now foreshadows the better thing later. But... Human sexuality, at least on this earth, doesn't always feel that way, does it? What about when life is not so neat and tidy? What about divorce? What about assault, abuse? What about sexual addiction? What about sexual histories before marriage? What if I experience same-sex attraction? What about painful shame that can follow my own sexual Activity. What if I'm single and satisfied? What if I'm single and suffering? What about sexual isolation, sexual dysfunction, sexual fears? Do any of those things mean that I am somehow irrevocably out of line with God? Is God's glory somehow diminished because I'm not doing those things or I don't feel those things? Is there something irreparably wrong with me because my life is not as neat and tidy as Genesis 1 and 2? No. And I hate to end on a cliffhanger, but that idea of brokenness and frustration, that's exactly where we're going next week. But I don't want to end too abruptly, and so hear me on this. The good news of the gospel says that no matter your sexual history, no matter your sexual fears, no matter your sexual brokenness, no matter your attraction, no matter your frustration, no matter your anxiety, the good news of the gospel is that you can enjoy a restored relationship with your Heavenly Father because of not your performance, but because of Christ's performance. And so here's where we're going to go. I'm going to invite worship team to come back on. Adam and Emily are going to come out, and we're going to have a time in reflective prayer. And we're not going to stand. We're just going to sit for a minute. We're going to sing Amazing Grace. It's a good starting point. And we're going to break it up into three pieces. This is going to take about five minutes or so. I know we're a little over on time. Here's what I want to do. First two verses of Amazing Grace that we're going to sing talk about this reality of our need for grace in an atmosphere of fear. When we are so immobilized by fear, how deeply do we need grace? And so I'd like for you to consider this first question we talked about. Where have I let fear justify my silence? Has there been any point in your life where you've done that? Take 30 seconds right now. Just ask the Lord to reveal that to you. Where have you let fear Justify your silence. Sit and pray quietly to yourself. And then after about 30 seconds, Adam's going to lead us in the first two verses of Amazing Grace. And then we'll come back up and ask the second question. Yeah. 
as we need God's grace to quell our fears. Here's a second question I want us to sit with just in these moments. Where have I chosen safety over relationship? We know this this world is a very dangerous world and we have a God who's promised to carry us through it. And so just for 30 seconds or so, sit with this question and ask the Lord to reveal if there's anything in you. Where have you chosen safety over relationship? And then we're gonna sing again. headed somewhere. Everything we experience on this earth points to something so much more beautiful, so much bigger than we could ever understand. So before I move any further though, here's the question. Where have I missed the point of sexuality and marriage? Where have we just missed it and thought about it wrong? It's an opportunity to say, Lord, maybe I've gotten it wrong. Show me. Let's take 30 seconds to sit with this and then we'll sing together.
so grace dependent. We need you in every breath that we take, every step, Lord. Our lives are yours. And so, Lord, as we begin on this trail as a church the next few weeks, Lord, God, just be with us. Keep our feet to your path. So we love you for all that you've given us. We say thank you for Jesus that all of our reality finds its fulfillment in him. Give us courage. Give us compassion, Lord. We love you. Send us out of here with your mission on our hearts, Lord. Thank you for this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful morning. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.